Book Two, Chapter Two of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Four Years of Peaceful Militancy, Chapter Two. With those brave shouts in my ears, I hurried down to London for the concluding session of the Parliament, for I had determined that I must be the first person to challenge the government to carry out their threat to revive the old act of Charles the Second. I made a long speech to the women that day, telling them something of my experiences of the past months, and how all that I had seen and heard throughout the country had only deepened my conviction of the necessity for women's votes. I feel, I concluded, that the time has come when I must act, and I wish to be one of those to carry our resolution to Parliament this afternoon. My experience in the country, and especially in South Leeds, has taught me things that cabinet ministers who have not had that experience do not know, and has made me feel that I must make one final attempt to see them, and to urge them, to reconsider their position before some terrible disaster has occurred. Amid a good deal of excitement and emotion, we chose the requisite thirteen women, who were prepared to be arrested and tried under the Charles the Second Tumultuous Petitions Act. I had not entirely recovered from the attack made upon me at mid-Devon, and my wrenched ankle was still too sensitive to make walking anything but a painful process. Seeing me begin almost at once to limp badly, Mrs. Drummond, with characteristic blunt kindness, called to a man driving a dog-cart, and asked him if he would drive me to the House of Commons. He readily agreed, and I mounted to the seat behind him, the other women forming in a line behind the cart. We had not gone far when the police, who already surrounded us in great force, ordered me to dismount. Of course I obeyed and walked, or rather limped along with my companions. They would have supported me, but the police insisted that we should walk single file. Presently I grew so faint from the pain of the ankle that I called to two of the women, who took hold of my arms and helped me on my way. This was our one act of disobedience to the police orders. We moved with difficulty, for the crowd was of incredible size. All around, as far as any eye could see, was the great moving, swaying, excited multitude, and surrounding us on all sides were regiments of uniformed police, foot and mounted. You might have supposed that instead of thirteen women, one of them lame, walking quietly along, the town was in the hands of an armed mob. We had progressed as far as the entrance to Parliament Square, when two stalwart policemen suddenly grasped my arms on either side and told me that I was under arrest. My two companions, because they refused to leave me, were also arrested, and a few minutes later Annie Kenny and five other women suffered arrest. That night we were released on bail, and the next morning we were arraigned in Westminster Police Court for trial under the Charles the Second Act. But as it turned out, the authorities, embarrassed by our readiness to test the act, announced that they had changed their minds and would continue, for the present, to treat us as common street brawlers. This was my first trial, and I listened, with a suspicion that my ears were playing tricks with my reason, to the most astonishing perjuries put forth by the prosecution. I heard that we had set forth from Caxton Hall with noisy shouts and songs, that we had resorted to the most riotous and vulgar behavior, knocking off policemen's helmets, assaulting the officers right and left as we marched. Our testimony and that of our witnesses was ignored. When I tried to speak in my own defense, I was cut short rudely, and was told briefly that I and the others must choose between being bound over or going to prison in the second division for six weeks. I remember only vaguely the long, jolting ride across London to Holloway Prison. We stopped at Pentonville, the men's prison, to discharge several men prisoners, and I remember shuddering at the thought of our women, many of them little past girlhood, being hailed to prison in the same van with criminal men. 
Arriving at the prison, we groped our way through the dim corridors to the reception ward, where we were lined up against the wall for a superficial medical examination. After that we were locked up in separate cells, unfurnished except for low wooden stools. It seemed an endless time before my cell door was opened by a wardress, who ordered me to follow her. I entered a room where another wardress sat at a table, ready to take an inventory of my effects. Obeying an order to undress, I took off my gown, then paused. Take off everything was the next order. Everything? I faltered. It seemed impossible that they expected me to strip. In fact, they did allow me to take off my last garments in the shelter of a bathroom. I shivered myself into some frightful underclothing, old and patched and stained, some coarse brown woolen stockings with red stripes, and the hideous prison dress stamped all over with the broad arrow of disgrace. I fished a pair of shoes out of a big basket of shoes, old and mostly mismates. A pair of coarse but clean sheets, a towel, a mug of cold cocoa, and a thick slice of brown bread were given me, and I was conducted to my cell. My first sensations when the door was locked upon me were not altogether disagreeable. I was desperately weary, for I had been working hard, perhaps a little too hard, for several strenuous months. The excitement and fatigue of the previous day, and the indignation I had suffered throughout the trial, had combined to bring me to the point of exhaustion, and I was glad to throw myself on my hard prison bed and close my eyes. But soon the relief of being alone, and with nothing to do, passed from me. Holloway Prison is a very old place, and it has the disadvantages of old places which have never known enough air and sunshine. It reeks with the odors of generations of bad ventilation, and it contrives to be at once the stuffiest and the draftiest building I have ever been in. Soon I found myself sickening for fresh air. My head began to ache. Sleep fled. I lay all night suffering with cold, gasping for air, aching with fatigue, and painfully wide awake. The next day I was fairly ill, but I said nothing about it. One does not expect to be comfortable in prison. As a matter of fact, one's mental suffering is so much greater than any common physical distress that the latter is almost forgotten. The English prison system is altogether medieval and outworn. In some of its details the system has improved since they began to send the suffragettes to Holloway. I may say that we, by our public denunciation of the system, have forced these slight improvements. In 1907 the rules were excessively cruel. The poor prisoner, when she entered Holloway, dropped, as it were, into a tomb. No letters and no visitors were allowed for the first month of the sentence. Think of it. A whole month, more than four weeks, without sending or receiving a single word. One's nearest and dearest may have gone through dreadful suffering, may have been ill, may have died meantime. One was given plenty of time to imagine all these things, for the prisoner was kept in solitary confinement in a narrow, dimly lit cell, twenty-three hours out of the twenty-four. Solitary confinement is too terrible a punishment to inflict on any human being, no matter what is crime. Hardened criminals in the men's prisons, it is said, often beg for the lash instead. Picture what it must be to a woman who has committed some small offense, for most of the women who go to Holloway are small offenders, sitting alone, day after day, in the heavy silence of a cell, thinking of her children at home, thinking, thinking. Some women go mad. Many suffer from shattered nerves for a long period after release. It is impossible to believe that any woman ever emerged from such a horror less criminal than when she entered it. Two days of solitary confinement, broken each day by an hour of silent exercise in a bitterly cold courtyard, and I was ordered to the hospital. There I thought I should be a little more comfortable. The bed was better, the food a little better, and small comforts, such as warm water for washing, were allowed. I slept a little that first night. About midnight I awoke and sat up in bed listening. A woman in the cell next to mine was moaning in long, sobbing breaths of mortal pain. 
She ceased for a few minutes, then moaned again horribly. The truth flashed over me, turning me sick as I realized that a life was coming into being, there in that frightful prison. A woman, imprisoned by men's laws, was giving a child to the world. A child born in a cell. I shall never forget that night, nor what I suffered with the birth pangs of that woman, who, I found later, was simply waiting trial in a charge, which was found to be baseless. The days passed very slowly, the nights more slowly still. Being in hospital, I was deprived of chapel and also of work. Desperate, at last, I begged the wardress for some sewing, and she kindly gave me a skirt of her own to hem, and later some coarse knitting to do. Prisoners were allowed a few books, mostly of the Sunday school kind. One day I asked the chaplain if there were not some French or German books in the library, and he brought me a treasure, Autor de Monhardin, by Jules Janin. For a few days I was quite happy reading my book and translating it on the absurd little slate they gave us in lieu of pencil and paper. That slate was, after all, a great comfort. I did all kinds of things with it. I kept a calendar. I wrote all the French poetry I could remember on it. I even recorded old-school chorals and old English exercises. It helped wonderfully to pass the endless hours until my release. I even forgot the cold, which was the harder to bear because of the fur coat, which I knew was put away, ticketed with my name. I begged them for the coat, but they wouldn't let me have it. At last the time came when they gave me back my things and let me go free. At the door, the governor spoke to me and asked me if I had any complaints to make. Not of you, I replied, nor of any of the wardresses, only of this prison and all of men's prisons. We shall raise them to the ground. Back in my comfortable home, surrounded by loving friends, I would have rested quietly for a few days, but there was a great meeting that night at Albert Hall, to mark the close of a week of self-denial to raise money for the year's campaign. Women had sold papers, flowers, toys, swept crossings, and sung in the streets for the cause. Many women, well known in the world of art and letters, did these things. I felt that I should be doing little if I merely attended the meeting, so I went. My release was not expected until the following morning, and no one thought of my appearing at the meeting. My chairman's seat was decorated with a large placard with the inscription, Mrs. Pankhurst's Chair. After all the others were seated, the speakers and hundreds of ex-prisoners, I walked quietly on to the stage, took the placard out of the chair, and sat down. A great cry went up from the women as they sprang from their seats and stretched their hands towards me. It was some time before I could see them for my tears or speak to them for the emotion that shook me like a storm. The next morning I, with the other released prisoners, drove off to Peckham, a constituency of London, where the WSPU members were fighting a vigorous by-election. In open breaks we paraded the streets, dressed in our prison clothes, or exact reproductions of them. Naturally, we attracted a great deal of attention and sympathy, and our daily meetings on Peckham Rye, as their common is known, drew enormous crowds. When polling day came, our members were stationed at every polling booth, and many men, as they came to the booths, told us that they were, for the first time, voting for the women, by which they meant against the government. That night, amid great excitement, it was made known that the liberal majority of 2,339 at the last general election had been turned into a conservative majority of 2,494. Letters poured into the newspapers declaring that the loss of this important liberal seat was due almost entirely to the work of the suffragettes, and many prominent liberals called upon party leaders to start doing something for women before the next general election. The liberal leaders, with the usual perspicacity of politicians, responded not at all. Instead, they beheld with approval the rise to highest power the arch-enemy of the suffragists, Mr. Asquith. Mr. Asquith became Prime Minister about Easter time, 1908, on the resignation, on account of ill health, of Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman. Mr. Asquith was chosen, not because of any remarkable record of statesmanship, nor yet because of great personal popularity, 
for he possessed neither, but simply because no better man seemed available just then. He was known as a clever, astute, and somewhat unscrupulous lawyer. He had filled several high offices to the satisfaction of his party, and under Sir Henry Campbell Bannerman had been Chancellor of the Exchequer, a post which is generally regarded as a stepping-stone to the premiership. The best thing the liberal press found to say of the new premier was that he was a strong man. Generally in politics, this term is used to describe an obstinate man, and this we already knew Mr. Asquith to be. He was a bluntly outspoken opponent of women's suffrage, and it was sufficiently plain to us that no methods of education or persuasion would ever prove successful where he was concerned. Therefore the necessity of action on our part was greater than ever. Such an opportunity presented itself at once through changes that took place in the new cabinet. According to English law, all newcomers into the cabinet are obliged to resign their seats in Parliament and offer themselves to their constituencies for re-election. Besides these vacancies, there were several others, on account of death or elevations to the peerage. This made necessary a number of by-elections, and the Women's Social and Political Union once more went into the field against the Liberal candidates. I shall deal no further with these by-elections than is necessary to show the effect of our work on the government, and its subsequent effect on our movement, which was to force us into more and more militancy. I shall leave it to the honest judgment of my readers to place where it ought rightly to be placed the responsibility for those first broken windows. We elected as our first candidate for defeat Mr. Winston Churchill, who was about to appeal to his constituency of Northwest Manchester, to sanction his appointment as President of the Board of Trade. My daughter, Christabel, took charge of this election, and the work of herself and her forces was so successful that Mr. Churchill lost his seat by 420 votes. All the newspapers acknowledged that it was the suffragettes who had defeated Mr. Churchill, and one liberal newspaper, the London Daily News, called upon the party to put a stop to an intolerable state of affairs by granting the women's demand for votes. Another seat was immediately secured for Mr. Churchill, that of Dundee, then strongly, in the merely party sense, liberal, and therefore safe. Nevertheless, we determined to fight Mr. Churchill there, to defeat him if possible, and to bring down the liberal majority in any case. I took personal charge of the campaign, holding a very large meeting in Kinnaird Hall on the evening before Mr. Churchill's arrival. Although we felt absolutely sure of election in this Scottish constituency, Mr. Churchill dreaded the effect of our presence on the liberal women. The second meeting he addressed in Dundee was held for women only, and instead of asking for support of the various measures actually on the government's program, the politician's usual method, he talked about the certainty of securing within a short time the parliamentary franchise for women. No one, he declared, can be blind to the fact that at the next general election women's suffrage will be a real practical issue, and the next Parliament, I think, ought to see the gratification of the woman's claims. I do not exclude the possibility of the suffrage being dealt with in this Parliament. Mr. Churchill earnestly reiterated his claim to be considered a true friend of the women's cause, but when pressed for a pledge that his government would take action, he urged his inability to speak for his colleagues. This specious promise, or rather prophecy, of woman's suffrage at some indefinite time won over a great many of the liberal women who forthwith went staunchly to work for Mr. Churchill's election. Dundee has a large population of extremely poor people, workers in the jute mills and the marmalade factories. Some concessions in the matter of the sugar tax, timely made, and the announcement that the new government meant to establish old-age pensions, created an immense wave of liberal enthusiasm that swept Mr. Churchill into office in spite of our work, which was untiring. We held something like two hundred meetings, and on election eve, five huge demonstrations, four of them in the open air and one which filled a large drill hall. Polling day, May ninth, was very exciting. 
for every suffragette at the polling booths there were half a dozen liberal men and women handing out bills with legends such as vote for churchill and never mind the women and put churchill in and keep the women out yet for all their efforts mr churchill polled twenty two hundred votes less than his liberal predecessor had polled at the general election in the first seven by-elections following mr asquith's elevation to the premiership we succeeded in pulling down the liberal vote by six thousand six hundred sixty three then something happened to check our progress mr asquith received a deputation of liberal members of parliament who urged him to allow the stanger suffrage bill which had passed its second reading by a large majority to be carried into law mr asquith replied that he himself did not wish to see women enfranchised and that it would not be possible for the government to give the required facilities to mr stanger's bill he added that he was fully alive to the many defects of the electoral system and that the government intended barring accidents to bring in a reform bill before the close of that parliament woman suffrage would have no place in it but it would be so worded that a woman suffrage amendment might be added if any member chose to move one in that case said mr asquith he should not consider it the duty of the government to oppose the amendment if it were approved by a majority of the house of commons provided that the amendment was on democratic lines and that it had back of it the support the strong and undoubted support of women of the country as well as the present electorate one would not suppose that such an evasive utterance as this would be regarded in any quarter as a promise that woman suffrage would be given any real chance of success under the asquith government that it was by many taken quite seriously is but another proof of the gullibility of the party-blinded public the liberal press lauded mr asquith's promise and called for a truce of militancy in order that the government might have every opportunity to act said the star in a leader typical of many others the meaning of mr asquith's pledge is plain women's suffrage will be passed through the house of commons before the present government goes to the country as for the women's liberal associations they were quite delirious with joy in a conference called for the purpose of passing resolutions of gratitude lady carlyle said this is a glorious day of rejoicing our great prime minister all honor to him has opened a way to us by which we can enter into that inheritance from which we have been too long debarred at the two following by-elections the last of the series an enormous posters were exhibited premier's great reform bill votes for women we tried to tell the electors that the pledge was false on the face of it that the specious proviso that the amendment be democratic left no doubt that the government would cause the rejection of any practical amendment that might be moved our words fell on deaf ears and the liberal majority soared just a week later mr asquith was questioned in the house of commons by a slightly alarmed anti-suffragist member the member asked mr asquith whether he considered himself pledged to introduce the reform bill during that parliament whether he meant to allow such a bill to carry a woman's suffrage amendment if such were moved and whether in that case the suffrage amendment would become part of the government policy evasive as ever the prime minister after some sparring replied my honorable friend has asked me a question with regard to a remote and speculative future thus was our interpretation of mr asquith's promise justified by his own lips yet the liberal women still clung to the hope of government action and the liberal press pretended to cling to it as for the women's social and political union we prepared for more work we had to strike out along a new line since it was evident that the government could for a time at least neutralize our by-election work by more false promises consistent with our policy of never going further than the government compelled us to go we made our first action a perfectly peaceable one on the day when the stanger bill had reached its second reading in the house and several days after i had gone to holloway for the first time mr herbert gladstone the home secretary made a speech which greatly interested the suffragettes 
He professed himself a suffragist, and declared that he intended to vote for the bill. Nevertheless, he was confident that it could not pass, because of the division in the cabinet, and because it had no political party united either for or against it. Women's suffrage, said Mr. Gladstone, must advance to victory through all the stages that are required for great reforms to mature. First, academic discussion, then effective action, was the history of men's suffrage. It must be the same with women's suffrage. Men, declared Mr. Gladstone, have learned this lesson and know the necessity for demonstrating the greatness of their movement, and for establishing that force majeure which actuates and arms a government for effective work. That is the task before the supporters of this great movement. Looking back at the great political crises in the thirties, the sixties, and the eighties, it will be found that the people did not go about in small crowds, nor were they content with enthusiastic meetings in large halls. They assembled in their tens of thousands all over the country. Of course, added Mr. Gladstone, is it not to be expected that women can assemble in such masses? But power belongs to masses, and through this power a government can be influenced into more effective action than a government will be likely to take under present conditions. The Women's Social and Political Union determined to answer this challenge. If assembling in great masses was all that was necessary to convince the government that women's suffrage had passed the academic stage and now demanded political action, we thought we could undertake to satisfy the most skeptical of the cabinet. We knew that we could organize a demonstration that would outrival any of the great franchise demonstrations held by the men in the 30s, 60s, and 80s. The largest number of people ever gathered in Hyde Park was said to have approximated 72,000. We determined to organize a Hyde Park demonstration of at least 250,000 people. Sunday, June 21, 1908, was fixed for the date of this demonstration, and for many months we worked to make it a day notable in the history of the movement. Our example was emulated by the non-militant suffragists, who organized a fine procession of their own, about a week before our demonstration. Thirteen thousand women, it was said, marched in that procession. On our demonstration we spent, for advertising alone, over a thousand pounds, or five hundred dollars. We covered the hoardings of London and all the principal provincial cities with great posters bearing portraits of the women who were to preside at the twenty platforms from which speeches were to be made, a map of London showing the routes by which the seven processions were to advance, and a plan of the Hyde Park meeting place were also shown. London, of course, was thoroughly organized. For weeks a small army of women was busy chalking announcements on sidewalks, canvassing from house to house, advertising the demonstration by posters and sandwich boards carried through the streets. We invited everybody to be present, including both Houses of Parliament. A few days before the demonstration, Mrs. Drummond and a number of other women hired and decorated a launch and sailed it up the Thames to the House of Parliament, arriving at the hour when members entertained their women friends at tea on the terrace. Everyone left the tables and crowded to the water's edge as the boat stopped. Mrs. Drummond's strong, clear voice pealed out her invitation to the Cabinet and the members of Parliament to join the women's demonstration in Hyde Park. "'Come to the park on Sunday,' she cried. "'You shall have police protection, and there will be no arrests, we promise you.' An alarmed someone telephoned for the police boat, but as they appeared, the women's boat steamed away. What a day was Sunday, June 21st, clear, radiant, filled with golden sunshine. As I advanced, leading with the venerable Mrs. Wollstoneholm Elmy, the first of the seven processions, it seemed to me that all London had turned out to witness our demonstration, and a goodly part of London followed the processions. When I mounted my platform in Hyde Park and surveyed the mighty throngs that waited there and the endless crowds that were still pouring into the park from all directions, I was filled with amazement and not unmixed with awe. Never had I imagined that so many people could be gathered together to share in a political demonstration. It was a gay and beautiful as well as an awe-inspiring spectacle. 
for the white gowns and flower-trimmed hats of the women against the background of ancient trees gave the park the appearance of a vast garden in full bloom the bugles sounded and the speakers at each of the twenty platforms began their addresses which could not have been heard by more than half or a third of the vast audience notwithstanding this they remained to the end at five o'clock the bugle sounded again the speaking ceased and the resolution calling upon the government to bring an official woman suffrage bill without delay was carried at every platform often without a dissenting vote then with a three times repeated cry of votes for women from the assembled multitude the great meeting dispersed the london times said the next day its organizers had counted on an audience of two hundred fifty thousand that expectation was certainly fulfilled and probably it was doubled and it would be difficult to contradict anyone who asserted it was trebled like the distances and the number of the stars the facts were beyond the threshold of perception the daily express said it is probable that so many people never before stood in one square mass anywhere in england men who saw the great gladstone meeting years ago said that compared with yesterday's multitude it was nothing we felt we had answered the challenge in mr gladstone's decision that the power belongs to the masses and that through this power the government could be influenced so it was with real hope that we dispatched a copy of the resolution to the prime minister asking him what answer the government would make to that unparalleled gathering of men and women mr asquith replied formally that he had nothing to add to his previous statement that the government intended at some indefinite time to bring in a general reform bill which might be amended to include women's suffrage our wonderful demonstration it appeared had made no impression whatever upon him end of book two chapter two